You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 715. The way I see it, if you want the rainbow, you're going to have to put up with the rain. Dolly Park. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films. From predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them, the odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Today on the show, we have Brooks Elms. Now, Brooks is a very interesting guy because he's a screenwriter, he's a director, he's written 25 plus screenplays, dozen of them on assignment. He's a script doctor, but in many ways, he's the screenwriter whisperer. That's what I like to call him because he helps not only screenwriters but filmmakers get back in touch with their creative flow, which is that that zone, that place that we all uh, as creatives strive to get to. And we get to it every once in a while. Some filmmakers and screenwriters live there like Eric Roth, for God's sakes, and so many Aaron Sorkin and Quentin Tarantino and so many other screenwriters and filmmakers uh, that I can list off here who just kind of like stay there or are able to tap into it every single time uh, they are doing work for decades. But most of us only get in there occasionally. And what Brooks does is he helps you find how you could get in there and tap in there and stay within that world when you're creating. It was a really fascinating conversation and I think it's going to be very instructive to all the members of the tribe. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Brooks Elms. I'd like to welcome the show, Brooks Elms. How you doing, Brooks? I'm great. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for being on the show, man. I, I truly appreciate it. Uh, yeah, you reached out to me uh, a little while ago. I think you heard me that I was going to write a screenplay. And you're like, hey, if you need any help, man, I'll coach you through it. I'll do that. I was like, and I appreciate that, by the way. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm, I don't even know when I'm going to start writing this thing, but uh, but I'll I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it was one of the many things uh, that interests me about you because I, I you got on my radar like like maybe ten years ago um, through a mutual friend uh, Scott um, who did this uh, podcast, Film Trooper. Of course. And Scott, yeah, friend uh, of the show, so, yeah, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, he, he's awesome. And it was funny because he kept going, oh, yeah, there's this guy, Alex Ferrari. I'm like, who is this guy? I was like all jealous. Like, who is this guy? Who is this Alex guy? <laughs> I looked her up and I'm like, man, this guy's bringing it, you know? And so I've, I've watched how, like, you know, you, you, you always help an indie filmmakers and then it's just kind of snowballing. So now you're like the Amazon of helping indie filmmakers. It's amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. Done. I might steal that. <laughs> the Amazon of helping filmmakers. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome to it. I actually, um, you can you can use that one. I, I came up with the uh, the tagline for theblacklist.com, where where uh, screenwriters meet filmmakers or something like that. They they sent out their beta and they had some terrible uh, uh, you know line. I was like, this is awful. Here, you should do something like this. Blah blah blah. And they go, oh, that's great. We're gonna use it. <laughs> so you're welcome to it. I, awesome. I, I, I do marketing stuff too, so it comes comes naturally. So uh, how did you get started in the business, man? Oh man, I started making movies with my friends back in high school and it was just so much fun. I, uh, my friend, it was, I was like 15 years old and my, um, oops, sorry, yeah, a little okay. noise back there. Um, I got started, I was uh, 15 years old and my friends came up and said, hey, we're making a kung fu movie, you wanna, you wanna do it? I was like, oh hell yeah, that sounds great. So we made that movie and, and then we made another one, we made another one, we showed our friends and they were laughing their asses off and I was like, oh my God, I was so completely and utterly hooked. Um, and, and by, and that was in high school and I probably made 50 short film experiments before I even got to NYU film school just because it was just, it was intoxicating. I mean, I, I loved it. You know, you know how that is. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, the yeah. disease, the disease as I call it, the disease, yeah. yes, the, you get bitten by the bug and you can't get rid of it. It's done. It's right. with you for life. It is. It is. Yeah. I consider myself a recovering independent filmmaker now. <laughs> I'm a recovering. Oh, I love that one too. I'm a recovering independent filmmaker. <laughs> It is. I'm always recovering. We're always, yeah, we're always constantly recovering, and then, and then, and then we, and then, of course, then we, of course, we fall off the wagon uh, because we, because we go and see, a, you know, we watch a Kubrick film or we watch a Nolan film, and you're like, oh, God, I gotta go back into, gotta, gotta, yeah. gotta make another movie. It's, yeah. it's the we're we're very weird creatures, uh, filmmakers and screenwriters. There's a very strange in the in the world of all creatives. Because uh, it's just such a, I don't think there's many other forms. Screenwriters are different, but filmmakers need a team, need to gather the troops, need to get the carnies together to put the tent up to put, put on the show. Uh, it is unlike any other art form, not a writer, not a painter. Even a musician could do something alone if they want to. They could be a singer-songwriter and do their own thing. Uh, for us, it's, it's just weird. We got to convince other people to jump on crazy train with us. Uh, as an independent, there, there was a moment. So, uh, after I graduated NYU film school, um, that summer I made my first feature and I was, it was, it was about this, uh, it was based loosely on, on the, uh, I, I played on the NYU soccer team and, and the movie was about how our team was like perfectly average. They weren't a great team. They weren't a terrible team. We were really good at drinking after games. Right. So I made this movie that was okay about, uh, about the soccer team and I was, four or five days into the shoot and we were doing these soccer sequences. So there was like 30, 40 people on set. I'm 22 years old. Don't really know what the hell I'm doing. But I went around and I looked around. I was like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. (laughs) That it was, it's just, and that's that. It's just, I guess it's like, you know, that love for movies and then the love for creation kind of come together when, when you're directing. Yeah, when you're on set, I love being on set. Set is one of the, my favorite places to be, uh, and we get to do it so rarely. 
you know, unless you're Ridley Scott, who's working 24 seven every day, and he's right. on set every week. Um, it's it's a tough it's it's tough because as an artist, you only get to actually do your art a handful of times, really, unless you're doing commercials or or doing something else. But like as a feature director, if you're lucky once a year, and that's an that's an insanity. If not, you're working every couple years. If you're lucky, as it's getting a project off the ground, getting the financing, get, it's a weird art form. And then you're depressed every the rest of the time. And is it like you when when we when you go off set and it's the last day of shoot? I always, I'm like depressed. Like I'm going into post, so it gives me something to look forward to. But when I'm, on the day of, I'm like, this family, these carnies are my family. I've been with for a few weeks now, and it's like this whole. It's just, a, it's, we're such weird creatures. <laughs> it's, it's, no, it's intense. It's absolutely intense because it's just, it's such a hurricane of intention and hope and, and dedication and awesomeness. And then it just goes, oh, there's a void when it's done. It's, oh, it's yeah. and, it's, and then, and then after post, it's worse. <laughs> yeah. Now you're just like, oh, I got, I got nothing to do now, except like hope the distributor is going to send me a check. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's I actually love the marketing side. Even when, so that film that I made when I was 22, when we finally finished it, um, I took it on like a college tour uh, on the East Coast. Good it was for so you. much fun. I did that. I like, we showed it because it was a college movie. And we showed it, uh, I showed it at a bunch of different colleges along the East Coast. And we did like a month long screening event in, uh, in, in an off off Broadway space in New York that I called the New York City Gorilla Cinema. So um, from the jump, I've always loved the marketing and promotion side as much as I love the, uh, the, the creation side as i do as you know as i do i <laughs> yeah, love i love the marketing promotion side it gets me jazzed <laughs> up big time now you work with a lot of screenwriters uh and and you know you consult and you coach and you help screenwriters break through their own crap uh as we all have our own walls we have to go through we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show why do you think screen? Why do most screenplays fail, in your opinion? Uh, because they, um, well, a we have to define how they fail, right? There's there's failing for story. My own, yeah, story. Well, so ultimately, like if if I mean because because let's take off the uh, the subjectivity, right? Because what might be a failure for me might be my favorite or vice versa, right? So let's take that apart. So let's say it's not even by the by the writer's own standards, it actually didn't hit the mark. Um, Generally, you're talking about it's, it's hero-goal conflict. The, 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 the hero probably wasn't as defined as it could be. The goal probably wasn't as compelling as it could be. Um, uh, and then the stakes, the conflict wasn't, wasn't quite right. Now, do you – when you start writing, do you write with uh, – starting with character or with plot? Um, oh, neither. I start with concept basically. Conce- so, so concept would be – more plot esque, I guess. Uh, kind if, of. If, if I had to, if or I had theme. to squeeze, if I had to squeeze one, I don't know. I think concept kind of bridges them both, right? Right. Because um, a great concept will have people kind of, you know, you can say it in, in a sentence, and, and and it'll sort of crack open people's mind. They'll go, oh, a that sound. I, I get, it. I get a lot of the stuff that's happening there, and it's really compelling. Oftentimes, there's a bit of an irony in there that that helps you sort of un, uh, unlock that sort of magic and you can do great work especially if you're a good director or you have a good director do your stuff with a sort of not a great concept right um but like when you start with a great concept everything else gets easier because of that quality of the foundation 
So talk to me about theme, because I think that's also another where another place where a lot of screenplays and stories fail is they have no 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 compass. And the theme mm-hmm. is that compass. And, and they just they you see it all the time. I mean, you watch some of these movies and you're just like, there's no theme here. There's no, there's just like, oh, look, there's a bunch of people fighting or there's a bunch of action or scares. But like when you look when you study like a horror movie specifically, you study uh, Halloween, you study, you know, Exorcist. Mm-hmm. The the storytelling is so solid that the scares are just bonus as opposed to films that just focus on the scares and not the thing. And there's that theme underneath it that really is the backbone. What do you, can you tell me about that? Yeah, that's it's an interesting question. So theme is is tricky because it's 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 a it's a gravitational center point and yet it's kind of ephemeral. You know what mm-hmm. I mean, if we kind of hold it too hard, it, it kind of slips through our fingers and, it's, and it gets more confusing, right? Um, uh, one helpful way that feels kind of concrete with theme, because for me, theme is like, you know, crime pays or crime doesn't pay or, or <laughs> right. love conquers all or, or we'll talk about Shawshank at some sometime, which is hope versus despair, right? Um, so, uh, but like a very sort of grounded, concrete way of thinking about it is, is really sort of your, your character's misbehavior and then their behavior. So they start out here with some sort of obstacle and problem and they're doing it the wrong way, right? And this is an expression of our own life. Like we've had, we all have life challenges and um, when we're in the more human side of ourselves, we're uh, not meeting our challenges well. We're running away from something, we're cowardly, we're, we're um, gluttonous or we're doing something, some sort of misbehavior. And, um, and our screenplays are a metaphor for this real thing going on in us, if they're really great. It's some sort of metaphor for something we did and we did it kind of the wrong way and the script is about how we learn to do it the right way through painful trial and error. Your theme is a, is a word that kind of speaks to that transformation. So in particular, with your idea of shooting for the mob, right? Mm-hmm. When you were talking, I, heard, I was watching your, your awesome uh, episode 501. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with, like, with RV. <laughs> and, I was, uh, and, I, and I was listening to it and I was like, oh, it's interesting. So if because uh, my understanding of where you're at is it's like you know, you've written the book and, and it, you know and, and at some point you want to do it and maybe even have some great screenwriters that might be helpful but you're kind of like I'm not sure kind of where to start my to my mind because that's sort of like my specialties I help I, I take uh, I take a writer <clears throat> and I and I clarify their superpower and then I walk with them step by step on how to completely powerfully realize it and what's exciting to me about at least where you are with your stories, your theme is always is already so light and clear. It's like it's about a, it's, you know, and I haven't read the book. I'm just basically on on the concept. Um, it's about a, an independent filmmaker that that is so you know urgent to make his movie that he ends up doing it the wrong way, getting in bed with the wrong people, and then realizing he can't do that. Right. So that it to me thematically, you're in a really good place. And a lot of times, especially independent filmmakers, they don't have a theme that's so clean and simple. So to my mind, structuring your story, even again, I haven't even read the book. I'm, I'm sure it's probably pretty good because I know you and I, you know, I know what, what you're doing. But like just based on a conceptual thing, what's going to make a good film, I can already see uh, potential for how you could structure that thematically and really powerfully um, just because your theme is so good. Well, I appreciate that. Um, that for me is a tough conversation just because it's it's such a it took me so long to get the courage to just even write the book. 
and the emotions that were attached to that story and and you know it's, it was real life and i literally you know was crying through some chapters as i wrote it because i was like going back to the darkest times of my life uh but i felt the needed to get out there to help other filmmakers and other not only filmmakers anybody in a tough situation that they can't they think they can't get out of but they can yeah. Yeah. um but for me it's just tough to even think about starting to write it again going back to that place mentally going back to that to that world i don't mind directing it and that's mm-hmm. actually what i it's a, a pre, pre, uh, it's a precondition of anybody who wants to make the movie with me is that i have to have I have to direct and my DP has to be the DP because he was Boris in the movie and that was in the, in the book and that's it. Uh, those are the only two. Pre- that's it. That's all I need. To, but I don't know. I think I might be too close to it, but we'll fi- I have to. Fi- I'll figure that out next year when I begin I, that process. I, 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 could, I could help you out offline just really quickly in terms of how to because the, the stuff I started doing first, I, like I won a screenplay award at NYU doing this very personal senior thesis film. Right. And it was about how. Um, I, the previous summer, I brought my girlfriend home to my hometown and like she and my best friend didn't get along. So it was a very personal film about my best friend. I had to choose between my best friend and my girlfriend, right? And it was very raw because it just happened. Um, uh, and then, and then the, the first feature I made was about my friends on the soccer team and how I was frustrated with the coach and blah, blah, blah. So, and then when I broke through to the next level and started really selling scripts, I was able to take my superpower as a guy that could write grounded characters and tension and then put it into a genre that was just more accessible. It was like I wrote this alien invasion movie that was very gritty and grounded and it felt like felt like a shooter event or a terrorist attack, but mm-hmm. it just kept unfolding from there into being this alien invasion and it did it did really well. So anyway, so uh, and I work with writers who are working with all sorts of deep personal issues. So mm-hmm. one of my specialties is figuring out how to, because we have to, coming from that personal place is exactly what's going to make that movie really great, mm-hmm. Alex. And yet you're right. If you're too close to it, it just triggers too much stuff because you, you lived it and you wrote about it already. And so. it's and it's tough to make a movie because a book is one thing, but to make a movie, it has to change. It, these characters are going to be added, story lines and plots are going to be added that, that have to be there to make it into a movie or else. Right. And that's the thing that it's hard for me to even comprehend. I'm like, well, that's not the way it happened. And even, even if mm-hmm. I... Even if I don't, uh, even if on a conscious level I say no, no, I'm going to let that go. On a subconscious level, it's going to it's going to rear it's going to rear its ugly head. So it's here's tough. And here, well, here's and here's how I would advise you or somebody in that situation, right? Because um, it happens a lot. The key is that will unlock it is um, thinking of it as the same but different of something else. So, for example, the the last script that I sold. Um, it's a father and son story, and I basically ripped off the the, the form of uh, Kramer versus Kramer, right? So Kramer versus Kramer, Dustin Hoffman, 1980, is a workaholic uh, ad man, the last guy that, that is actually a good father. Meryl Streep having a nervous breakdown takes off and goes, "You gotta you gotta watch our kid." He's like, "What the?" You know, so he has to learn painfully how to be a dad. And then at midpoint, she's like, "Okay, I've had my breakdown. I want to come back and take custody." He goes, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa." Now I like being a dad. (laughs) So then it's them fighting, right? So I took that basic pattern, right? And I swapped out everything, all the characters, all the settings. (laughs) And I I wrote this script um, called The Art of the Knockout that's going into production next year. And it's about this bare knuckle brawler that travels around the circus in the 1920s. He fathered this kid 
eight years ago that I didn't even know about. That kid's mom dies, and they stick him. And so the last guy that should be a dad, this bare knuckle brawler, is stuck watching this kid. He hates it. He tries to get rid of the kid. It's awful. And then slowly learns to actually really love being a father, and then has to fight to keep him at the end, right? So it's the same but different. And when that got set up, and I was getting notes, none of the notes were on the structure. Structure perfect. The only notes were they had a couple ideas on how to raise the stakes and this and that. So my invitation to you or anybody like you that has something based on personal experience. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. See if it, it helps, it'll help you to, to sort of differentiate it from what actually happened and thinking of it as a movie. And if once you think of it as a movie, oh, it, and it doesn't have to be the same genre. Oh, it's kind of like such and such or this or that. And then once you think of it as that, and then you, you use what actually happened in the book about it as a buffet of elements to serve the vehicle of the story, now you're just making it more accessible. Now, you might not want to do all that stuff. <laughs> you know, it's independent filmmaking. We can do whatever the hell we want, right? So, um, so you got to do it the way you want, most importantly. And... If you want to lean into what Hollywood does best in terms of concept and structure, that would be my invitation. Find a form of a story that you can kind of use because you don't. Because here's the other thing that happens, uh, Alex. I, I, I kind of I, I, I liken it to people that put like a triangle wheel on a car, right? Really creative, but that car's not going to go anywhere because right? <laughs> okay. it's not going to run. So what I say is, don't be creative. Round wheels. Big wheels, small wheels, fine, but round wheels. And then once we know it goes, then get creative. And so for me, for you, I think the most accessible and powerful version of what actually happened in sort of vision would probably be something like that. Pick a, 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 a movie that you love and, and that has and, and get the round wheels from that and then swap it out and make it completely personal to you. And to me, that's a way of being completely 100% authentic to the to that theme and the feelings because that's what we really care about. Um, but the actual move, the story that comes out, you know, is some things exactly what happened and some things that are just there to serve the new truth of your metaphor. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes it makes all the sense in the world. You said something that was really interesting, and, and I think it's a, a lesson that we can can we pass on to the listeners is the the you took Kramer versus Kramer structure and swapped it out. There's so many screenwriters, working screenwriters, who do that all the time. That they'll take a movie, their favorite movie, and they'll swap out the theme. They'll swap. They'll swap out the conversation. They swap out everything. Characters. It's not like they're stealing anything. That's sometimes, right. sometimes right. it is, and I'm going to give you an example of what it was. Uh, but, um, but, but. But you can use that structure because that hard work has been laid out. It's kind of like already having a blueprint. And you're putting up new walls, you're, you're dressing yeah. it differently, you're putting new finishes on, but it's the structure that's been sound and it works already and it's been proven to work. And that's Got something it. that a lot of, a lot of if you especially, and again, it's also a good starting point too. If you start looking at a movie and you break down their scenes and you're like, okay, I'm going to replace this scene with this scene and this scene with this scene and I'm just going to literally copy the, the blueprint of that, that's a good starting point to, to get the juices flowing. And it could shift a bit as you go. It's not going to be exact, but the the basic foundation is 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 the uh, is the same. And I found that to be really really valuable. I always look at movies like what movie do I want this to be at like, and it doesn't have to be the same genre. It could be completely different. Perfect right. example of a movie uh, that we all know uh, that uh, started one of the biggest franchises in the world. Uh, Point Break. Point Break. 
Wonderful huh? film. Love it. One of the best action movies of the 90s. Keanu Reeves in all of his glory. Patrick Swayze in all of his glory. Um, it is basically, it uh, was stolen 100% uh, is Fast and Furious. The first Fast and Furious is Point Break. Look oh, at nice. If you look at it and analyze it, Fast and Furious 1 is the, it's the, actually the, they just switched out surfers for cars. That was the only difference. It's the only difference in the movie. Same but different. It's same the exact same movie. It's like, it's not surfers and it's the same thing. And, uh, and then you know he falls. Uh, it's just, one another interesting example of that. I, in the, the script that I just finished now, I was using the model of Dead Poet Society. A mentor yeah. comes in, yeah. uh, gets really overly influenced. It goes to a tragic place, but then they still celebrate the mentor at the end, right? And I was telling people when I was getting notes, I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is kind of like Dead Poet Society. Whatever. And people would read it and go, there's nothing like Dead Poet Society. What the hell are you talking about? So I had been so creative past <laughs> where the round – and I, I knew as a screenwriter, no, it was exactly it was exactly that pattern. Those were the exact same round wheels, but they couldn't tell because I made it 100% authentic to me and my characters despite the fact that it had a rock-solid foundation. So that's, I think, the key for you is that if you find a way of telling an aspect of what happened – um, that feels like really beautifully in harmony with one of your favorite movies sort of patterns, dude, that, that to me, I could see you just amazingly telling that story, uh, in a really powerful way. I appreciate that. Um, well, we'll see. We'll see. I got a couple things I got to do this year. <laughs> uh, yeah, and the broader thing for everybody is like anybody, anybody who's doing memoir, right? Something that's, that's starting from a really personal place. It's tricky if we're too close to it, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a game of, of getting a real healthy distance. It's great that you're writing what you know because it's going to resonate with authenticity. The game is to put it in a, in a package that's more accessible to more people depending on whatever audience size you want to serve. It's fine to do something obscure if that's really where your heart is. But if you want to do something that's really bigger and breaks through with a bigger audience, they're looking for a cleaner foundational package. Um, and you can do that just by sort of, you know, understanding how the same but different works in terms of concept. Now, uh, you mentioned Shawshank, which uh, everyone listening to the show knows my my love for Shawshank. And anytime we get to talk about Shawshank uh, and analyzing and breaking it down, I think it's a it's a benefit to every listener. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Shawshank and what Shawshank can teach us as writers, as storytellers, and the brilliance of what Frank Darabont did with a short a short story from Stephen King, arguably still the worst title in movie history, Shawshank Redemption. It's it's absolutely horrendous title uh, for marketing. I love the title, and it makes all the sense in the world. But try to market that movie, and they couldn't. Brutal. <laughs> it's no, it's brutal. Terrible, terrible marketing decision. Um, but yeah. But what do you call it though? But let me ask you: What do you call it? If you can't call um, it, it's a redemption movie. But what do you call it? No, you, you, it, it's about hope. You, you basically not, and obviously not like hope this or hope that, but like something that evokes hope. Um, uh, I would love to brainstorm a really good title for that because I, I guarantee you. Well, look, you can't do worse than that title, right? So that's, yeah, it's pretty bottom. It's like one of the worst titles. I still remember it was nominated for. It was nominated for best picture. Didn't win anything. Yeah. No, I think it was nominated for best screenplay. I think it had to be nominated for best screenwriting. Might have been. It, it might have been. I think he got like he well, got like three or four Oscar nominations, like some acting. Yeah, I, think and, it, I think I think I think in its initial release, I don't think it did very well. I think it didn't bomb, died. but it kind of just limped along, and then it yeah. got some awards, and it got another bump, but then it really picked up. I think in in uh, in, in home uh, video, home viewing afterwards. Yeah, yeah, home video, and then it then became number one on IMDb. 
It beat The Godfather as the best movie, of, most that's beloved right. movie of all time. That's right. That's right. So, um, okay. So here, here's here's my thoughts on, on the, the number one takeaway for anybody listening, because I know these were all sto- fellow storytellers, is to, if you happen to like the movie, uh, or especially if you love it, the best takeaway is really theme. Because um, the way they talk about hope versus despair is so beautiful and so powerful and so clean and simple. Again, a lot of times with theme, it gets heady. It's really hard to kind of track. But with Shawshank, it's so damn clear and compelling, but not like batting you over the head of, head with it, but but really easy to track. So, And what you have is a really interesting dynamic of the way it's structured. So you have um, Red, played by uh, Morgan Freeman, who I would uh, characterize as actually the protagonist, even though he, he is. Um, Tim, yeah. Tim Robbins, uh, you know, Andy Dufresne is driving the narrative. So that's unusual. Usually, our almost always our protagonist drives the narrative, but in this case, I would call Red the protagonist because he changes in the end. He goes from despair. Look, you can't use hope in this place. Hope will get you killed. You have to despair. You have to be cynical about life. And then slowly. He sees Andy like an effing freight train getting beat up and raped and all these terrible things happen over and over again. And he's a freight train of hope and hope and hope and hope and hope and digs himself out and breaks out of with a breaks out of prison with like a little rock hammer for like 10 years. I mean, that's the most magnificent expression of hope you could possibly believe. And he finally makes it out. And I think it's such a triumphant expression of hope over despair and we all feel both of them but to me thematically it's so powerfully laid out and i think that's why it resonates so deeply plus there's some charm in those characters there's a warmth between that friendship between those two guys but thematically it's it's a great model to study if you're confused about theme or this or that the thing that's so fascinating about about shawshank for me is that on, on paper it's it's a horrible pitch uh, it's a horrible, um, you know, you see the trailer, you're just like, it's about a prison. It's a prison movie. It's like, it doesn't, it does, only once you experience it do you understand the depth of it. And I remember seeing that, it was what, 94? So I, I think it was came out in 94. So I had just gotten out of high school a few years and I was with a bunch of knucklehead friends of mine who were not moviegoers and they were touched. And when those guys were touched, yeah. I was like, wow, this is, This hit, this cut through everything. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, At that time, I even felt it when I saw it in the theater. I was just like, wow, this is, this is a different kind of film. And Hollywood calling. Yeah. um, It was a very different kind of film. And I always, my analysis of the film has always been like, I always ask the same question why does it connect? Because we could all just pray for a connection with an audience like Shawshank has. And, and, And like, what is it about that film? Because it's not obvious. It's not an, like Rocky. We get why people connect with Rocky. We connect with why people connect with with Indiana Jones or, or or Star Wars. We get it. But Shawshank is so under the radar on the surface. You can't. What do you think? Here's here's a, you're gonna love this answer because uh, it's clear as day to me why it connects, and you can use that for your own story. It's because we feel despair. And, and the despair that I feel in my life as a, you know, coddled white male in, you know, in the richest country ever um, is still hurts and is scary to me. And when I see a depiction of it like that, 
like you know the guy's in prison and the people are coming after him and he's, his physical safety is, is there, and he was wrongly imprisoned and all these things, all these terrible things. And if that guy can have hope in that place, holy crap. And then have it pay off by him actually getting out because that hope paid off after like 15, 20 years he was in. It wasn't like, like a week. Um, and to me, that speaks so deeply to all of us because we all face oftentimes in a daily basis an aspect, a sort of much lesser aspect, but an aspect of hope versus despair. Should I even get out of bed? You know, but sometimes oh, yeah. you feel despair. You don't want to get out of bed, but you have hope and you climb out or whatever. So, but it's that to me, it's so universal in our own way, that sense of, do we have hope? Do we have an, op- is there an opportunity for something to happen? And so like for your, you know, your story about this guy who has this urgent hope that this movie is going to get made and he wants, he's got this beautiful dream and then he's in this despairing place where he's getting involved with these people that are, that are difficult. So it's to me, what you love about Shawshank, I, you can bring out cinematically in what you love about your own movie. And in fact, when I work with people, that's exactly where I go to. So I, I, I li- have them list their favorite movies and we get into why they love them, why Shawshank speaks so deeply to you. What does that hope versus despair really feel like in your real life? And I pro- again, I haven't even read the book, but I promise you there are, re- there are things that went on in your real life that you sort of associate with this idea of hope versus despair that you also connect to Shawshank. And then what I do is I connect those things out so that when people write a movie that feel that has the same sort of pattern as Hollywood, but it's authentic in a way that's really deep and personal, that's when it crackles with authenticity. And so um, does that make sense? That may, it makes it makes perfect sense. I mean, I've always come, I've always had a, I've said this on the show before, but I think the analogy of Shawshank and 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 Andy Dufresne's journey is what connects with people because you feel. You are Andy Dufresne, and in many ways, many of us in the world, depending on where you live in the world, um, at one point or another, feel imprisoned. Yeah. Feel like yeah. the that the universe is doing is wrongly beating you, right. uh, attacking you. Um, That's right. Bad things are happening to you, and you're innocent. Yeah. Uh, yes. And you're innocent of these bad things. And then that not only does he have hope to fight through all of that, but he literally crawls through a mile of shit. Then he literally gets out of that, is cleansed from the gods of the shit. Literally, the shit is coming off of him. He's taking the old clothes off of him, putting on a new suit, living the life that he's been dreaming about. For 15 years, and then on top of it all, he gets revenge, the sweetest revenge on his jailers. And he literally lives on a freaking paradise. And that's, but that's why I think it feels so, for me, for me, I mean, let's now get into the psychoanalysis of Alex Ferrari Um, (laughs) for a second, if anybody cares. For me, when I saw that movie, I didn't feel it as much as I felt it years later where I hadn't been beat up by the business yet as much. I had been beat up. I had, I think when I saw Shawshank, I hadn't, the the thing with the mob hadn't happened to me yet. It was years away. 
So yeah. years later, that movie took another meaning for me because of all the abuse that the business has given me and right. failures that I've had that I'm like, why is this happening to me? Why can't I get the opportunity? Why can't someone open the door for me? Why can't I have my pickaxe and uh, to knock into some doors? And I felt imprisoned in my own. So there was a lot of that going on. And I Got think it. that's one of those things that when people watch it, they identify with. So and that's exactly it, right? So the metaphor of being in prison and even getting to the end and crawling through the shit and all that stuff is is a really good metaphor for how so many people feel about their life, how we psychologically process mm -hmm. our life. Mm -hmm. And so when you do that, your own version of that, which is really great because like most people don't experience prison, most people don't experience a run-in with the mob. So it's a really beautiful, exaggerated metaphor for most people. Plus, you've got this hero with this beautiful, innocent, sweet dream. He wants to be a filmmaker, right? Um, so it's, uh, you know, the key is in, 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 in sort of, the takeaway I would invite for you to take it is, is just look at how much every scene there's conflict and conflict and conflict and conflict. So that allows us to feel like it's earned so much when he comes. A lot of scripts, you talked about what, what some main things that sort of trip people up in terms of a great screenplay. A lot of times the, the conflict isn't strong enough. They, uh, they yeah. take it a little too easy on me, especially in act 2B. Um, when things that's when like Blake Snyder would say things are this is when bad guys close in things can get much harder um, a lot of screenwriters take their foot off the gas and we feel bad because we love our hero and it's hard for them but no we need to burn their house down we need to because the more we torture them in act 2B the, the more powerfully they can rise from the act uh, from the ashes in act three and be the hero they were meant to be without a good villain you don't have conflict without a good villain you can't have a hero be a hero and that is is as simple as that and the balance is not to make the villain too powerful that the, that the hero has no chance well well I, I would say I, the way I would say it is um, Make the guy as absolute powerful as you can without losing plausibility, right? That's it's like the, me against yeah. Godzilla. I'm not going to win, and it's stupid, right? Right, and that's in uh, Kong versus Godzilla. Then it's a it's a it's a decent fight, right? Right, exactly. And, you know, you want to make you know Darth Vader's Darth Vader, you know, and you want Darth, you want Hannibal Lecter to be Hannibal Lecter, um, but there's a chance, like Apollo versus Rocky. Which is, I mean, that, there's not many movies from the 70s that still resonate to this day um, in, in the way that they do, you know, like I could, I could show that to a 20-year-old now and they'll be like, yeah, it looks a little dated, but I get it. And the music and all that stuff. But, the, but when Apollo and, and the thing that was so brilliant about Rocky, the first Rocky, is that Rocky didn't have any aspirations to beat Apollo. That was the brilliant move in Stallone's script. He didn't want to beat him. He just wanted to stay with him. Listen, so two, I'll, I'll, let me jump in two things that I love about that as an example. So two things. One is, one of my favorites is the double refusal of the call. So oh, uh, he gets, he gets the, the opportunity to fight the champ and he goes, no, 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 I'm just a bum. I can't do it, right? And then Mick comes. So he basically says no at first, right? And then um, Mick comes over and goes, dude. I can train champions. I can train you, you know? And he goes, no, 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 no. I don't. So the double work, because the refusal of a call is always a, a wonderful moment in act one and they do it twice powerfully. Then to your point, at the end of act two, um, I, to my mind, I, if I remember correctly, he always, he, he for, once he committed to answer the call and, and commits, then he's like, okay, I'm going to take on, I'm going to be the champ. And at the end of act two, he's studying the tape over and over again and goes, I can't beat him. He's not dark night of the soul. It's like, I can't beat that guy. But to your point, 
if I can go the distance, if I can hold my own, then I have the real win, which is my redemption and my dignity. And then that gives me chills just speaking. No, to it, that's what we all want. Right? I mean, it's it's spawned what eight movies now or something like that. It's it, and we're still every time we're like, okay, I'm gonna watch another one. I'm gonna watch. <laughs> I'm gonna watch it again. I could yeah. watch Rocky one, three, four, uh, six. And all the not creeds. Not, not a fan of Rocky Two. I don't mind Rocky Two as much. I don't mind Rocky Two, but uh, Five is we should not dis- discuss Five. Um, <laughs> five is not to be discussed. It just goes right from Four to Rocky Balboa. That's the way, and that's actually the way he did it. I think. <laughs> I think even Stallone's like, yeah, I, I don't know what I was doing back then. Um, but the thing that was, and, and for everyone listening, if you if you analyze Rocky, there literally could not be a villain like Apollo. There is absolutely no credible chance that Rocky Balboa should even be in the same room with him, let alone in the ring with him. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And as the movie goes on, you start seeing, well, wait a minute, he's cracking ribs of of, of, of cows. You're giving, he's got a shot now. Is Does it? Can he, can he possibly beat the Titan? It's like the, it's the mortal going after the Titan. It's insane. It's, it's a wonderful film. It's, it really is wonderful. And I hadn't thought about it to, to, you, uh, to you just the way you said it there. But, but what's lovely about that construction is at the beginning, Rocky is such at a low point in his life. He's so severely oh. feeling self-doubt and just hates himself. And, it just is, and what is the opposite of that? Apollo Creed perfect uh everything just as confident everything he's the best M- rich he's the world yeah so it's a beautiful mirror of each other which is a metaphor for us and part of us always feels that despair part of us feels that that power right and the movie really beautifully you know earns step by step to the point where the part of us that feels despair finds redemption in, in, in actually not even beating the beating the world champ but just holding his own against the champ Beautiful. And and the way and I love the way you were saying the the analysis of like he's the mirror image so he's the champ he's perfect he's got everything Rocky's got nothing he's got self doubt so they're opposite they're mirror opposites of each other which is exactly what a villain and a hero should be is mirror opposites but as the movie continues and this is the brilliance of what Stallone did the the characters start getting closer together thematically he yeah. starts to lose his confidence a bit he right. starts to gain it a bit till at the end of the movie. They're even. They're even. Rocky yeah. has gone the distance with the champ. The champ has now had he lost the fight or honestly lost the fight to Rocky because he allowed a bum to quote unquote bum to hold him off and survive against the champ. So when Rocky 2 starts, they're starting on even keel. Yeah. That's the brilliant I – mean, it's just such a brilliant way of looking at it. And you look at that now and it's – it's just it's been stolen a million times. I mean, how many times have we seen Rocky? <laughs> it's like Star yeah. Wars. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, yeah, and, and and if they steal it in the right way, like we've been talking about, the right amount of the same but different, it's amazing. And that's the tricky thing. Like when I do my own stuff and I work with other people, it's really about dialing in the same amount of the same but different or the the right amount because if it's too familiar, then it's like boring, and if it's too different, then it's like weird, right? So you want familiar enough and fresh enough, you know, the same but different. It's did tricky. you see the movie Warrior? Uh, I did. Yeah, yeah, the, the MMA, the fight. MMA fight. I absolutely love Warrior. I think it's a master masterwork. It's easily the best MMA movie. And there had been a few other MMA movies, but they're nothing that 
nothing that hooked it. But the thing yeah. that was so brilliant about Warrior, and because it's a Rocky, it's kind of a Rocky-esque. There's, and they even mention Rocky in the movie, which is great. Uh, hey, Rocco, you know, <laughs> are you going to bring Mickey? Um, that... But the, the emotion, I remember seeing that in the theater. I was bawling at the end. I was oh, absolutely bawling. My wife and I was sitting there and I was absolutely just like sniffles, you know, boogers coming out. I was nice. bawling. I connected so well because of the the emotional connection with the brothers yeah. and, the, and the dad. But it was just such a brilliantly constructed story. And then Tom Hardy was, you know, yeah. fabulous. Yeah. It was it was amazing. It was amazing. Sorry, went off on a tangent there. Um, but well, no, this is great. My next project is like it's a fight film, so I, I love fight films. Raging Bull is my favorite fight film. I mean, in Raging Bull, but like, okay, you look at something like Raging Bull and you just go, well, why do I even bother making movies? <laughs> You know, sometimes, nope. sometimes you make it. It's like watching you. You walk in and you see the Sistine Chapel, and you're like, "Well, I should just drop the brush right now." It's it's been done, um, but the thing is, it's not. It's it's never been done to your what you can bring to the table, and never underestimate that power. Not that you're going to be better, but there's something inside you that Martin Scorsese doesn't have, and vice versa. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Exactly right. One of my favorite stories about Raging Bull is. Um, is that I heard that when they went to, to get this thing set up at a studio, um, you know, De Niro's in there with, with Marty and, and, and they're talking and, you know, the, the studio execs like, oh, you know, I don't know this thing. This guy, is, this character, he's kind of like a cockroach. And De Niro goes, no, he's not. That was it. It was just like, and it was that, and it was that <laughs> conviction and that non-judgment of this is a human being and I'm called to play him and that and he's just, he was a force of an actor playing a force of a man and it was to me that was like yeah that's why that movie is so good the guy is really in a lot of ways he's a terrible husband a terrible brother a terrible he's what makes him amazing in the ring makes him terrible in his personal relationships which you know is a a metaphor that lots of people can do but like Scorsese and Schrader and De Niro all were so uh, devoted to the authenticity of that character in those relationships that they didn't judge them and that made it so compelling because we all have those parts in ourselves that go too far in this way or that way. Yeah, there's no no question. And sometimes you you like to wallow in the dark areas of, of your life, and you rarely wallow in the good. I mean, sometimes you do, but it's it's it, you well, have I, to learn. I, I know you have I, to learn. It's, it's, no, no, it's, it's, it's a skill. It, for sure. So, so that's actually one of the other things I do in my own life and, and when I help writers, we practice wallowing in the good stuff because um, it, it makes it more – you know how it is. It's a marathon, right? And it's easier – it's less challenging to run the marathon when, when we have more good, good feelings more often. So this, this flow state. Um, I'm, I'm an absolute uh, champion of getting people into the flow state, staying in the flow state as long as possible when they get bumped out, getting them back in because A, it feels better. And B, you get better results because it's more sustainable than um, than sort of cynicism. Yeah, can we talk a little bit about that flow state for a minute? Because it's it's an interesting thing. I've I've, I've brought this up on 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 multiple shows that I, I I host because it's I always find it fascinating when I when I talk to you know some of these you know Oscar winning or legendary writers or, or something like that, and, and I go how how do you tap into that? Because, you know, like when you're writing Forrest Gump, <laughs> there's something going on. 
Like you're mm-hmm. you're tapping into something else, and then and then and, and it's always there's the one offs that do that one great script, and they never they never can reach that height again. That's one thing, and they were just able to get in there for a second, and then they left. But then there's the people that just hold that career, and they just hit boom and boom and boom and boom, and you're just like. How do you continuously connect to the, that state? And what is that state? And where, where is that coming from? I, I was always a bigger, like, who's the man behind the, who's the man or the woman behind the curtain sending yeah. you this, this information? Because I always feel that we're, as writers, we're just conduits. We're conduits of something coming in. I think Spielberg said this, that he's like, ideas float around the universe and they pop into your head. And if you don't do something about it, someone else will pick it up and you might get the first crack at it. And that's why he's always so like, it was, it was it him. No, it's Prince. Prince. I, I was just talking to somebody who worked with Prince and Prince would call at three o'clock in the morning to his like his singer and like a musician, like, Hey, um, what are you doing? Like, I don't know, Prince It's three o'clock in the morning. What do you, what do you need? It's like, uh, do you want to do you want to come in and record? I'm like it's it's three o'clock in the morning. Can can I wait four or five hours? He's like, no. If I don't get this, Michael Jackson's gonna get it, and I want to record it first. That's great. It's that's a great story, but that's a true story. It's fascinating that you went to a musician because the 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 examples that pop into my mind right away are are from a few different musicians because they just hear it. So one of them was um, Chris Martin in an interview, and they're talking yeah. about one of his, what it's just, and you just see it. He goes. It was like he was in a listening state. He just said, "It just I was listening, and it and it came through. It came to me." Paul McCartney was like oh. um, one one of his best songs. He woke up in the morning, he heard the song in his head, and he was like, "Oh yeah, who, who yeah who sings this one? Who's this?" And he kind of his friends were like, "I don't know, I've never heard that one." He's like, "No, no, no, this one." Oh, and he realized, "Oh, nobody, it was me." I don't know. So it's this thing. It's 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 a state of listening as opposed to like leaning forward. I'm writing my story. It's I'm listening to the universe in this flow state, and that's when we get to the height of our creativity. Same thing um, with Bob Dylan. I, I listened to an old interview with him a couple days ago, and, they, and it was like, and the interview was a 60 minutes interview, and he's like, yeah, you said you wrote Blown in the Wind in 10 minutes. And he goes, yeah. <laughs> and it was like, and I was looking at him, and it was the same energy I saw around the other two, same thing with Prince. He And he was like, well, how'd you do it? And you just see him, it's almost like he's radio tuning. You just see him going here, and he was like, yeah, it just it just came to me. He opened up in a way, and it came through. And then he also didn't. He also said in the same thing. He's like, I, I haven't been able to get to that quite flow state. That channel, myself. that channel again. I can't. I can't tune into that channel again. That that's what he said. But 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 to the people that are musicians or filmmakers or whatever that are able to sort of sustain optimal creative flow over decades. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. They have a repeatable process of getting into that listening mode, a way of sort of opening up and being soft. And, and you, I'm, I'm sure, you know, you've, you've spoken to all these amazing people and I'm, I'm sure you see there's almost a lightness of energy when you talk to those people that are really hitting on that level. At least when they're doing their thing, it'll open and it'll fl- – and, and then you don't know where the hell I – you're, you're almost like a stenographer. It's like, oh, I didn't write this. It's, it's coming through me, through me in service to the audience. And so that's one of my, as a coach, it's one of my favorite things to do is make choices in my relationship when I'm listening to somebody to induce that flow state really deeply and as often as possible. And then when they show up on a call and, um, and they're, they're having a tough day or whatever, 
I make choices that kind of just nudge them slightly up or give them really hold space. I listen to them and let them unfold into that flow state so that they optimize their creativity. I love it. <laughs> it's No, it's amazing. I've actually felt that in in editing i've done that a lot like you feel the flow of of the cuts and you just and then all of a sudden you're like i've been sitting here for six hours um that's the the state that's that's how you know yeah but with my books my two books that i've written both of them i'll go back to and i'm like who wrote this because it's just channeled through me it really i mean yes i obviously shooting for the mob is my story but the words of putting the story together uh, I would just write, and then I would go back and read it. And I'm like, who wrote this? Like, I same thing with Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, which is a it's a more of a nonfiction. It's a, actually a nonfiction book, instructional book. Even then, I'm like, the concepts and stuff, I know all of them, but like, who put? I don't remember writing that. Yeah, I don't remember writing not. this. Like, how? Who wrote? This? Like, this is good. <laughs> like, so, so here's here's a really interesting thing. So, um. One of the reasons I love – one of the things I did about Shawshank, I, I, Shawshank Redemption, I, I made this video about how you can read Shawshank Redemption as a law of attraction story, right? So law of attraction is this mm-hmm. idea that you basically – however you show up, you will attract you know, the energy of how you show up. So if you show up feeling successful, you attract success in general, right? That's a lot of other parts to it. But I did a video where I was showing you sort of – Walking through Shawshank um, with that lens of law of attraction. So instead of hope versus despair, it was sort of um, attracting versus sort of repelling. Um, but it's significant in, in, in this context because when, um, you know, when, because some of those law of attraction people that when they're talking, they actually say they're channeling and they're saying it's coming from some people say aliens or some people say spirits, right? And look, they, they might be. I don't have that personal experience. Sure. But, but from my perspective, Exactly what you said. It's like you felt like it almost wasn't coming from you. And so when some of those law of attraction people talk about it, they believe literally it's not coming from them. And and who cares because it, it puts them in a state of them being able to say, I'm spreading more joy. I'm helping people better. I'm coming up with really deep, powerful ideas more often, more consistently. So to my mind, I don't give a crap where how you're talking about it, whether it's aliens or spirits or just like you or I see it as just sort of the muse or creativity and it comes through, if you're getting to those really beautiful, powerful ideas in a flow state, great. That's what matters. Yeah. And, and, and I'm always fascinated about where creativity comes from. You know, I've, I've been fascinated by this. So I always, I love asking um, some of these heavy hitters that come on the show of like, how do you do it? Like how, where does it come from? And I was, I was interviewing on another show, um, Bruce Dickinson, the, the lead singer of Iron Maiden. Wow, cool. And uh, what a great conversation that was. And when I was talking to him, I was, I asked him, I'm like, man, what does it feel like being in Wembley Stadium with 90,000 people? Like, what, like, I, I'm never going to get that. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think anytime soon 90,000 people are going to show up to, to hear me talk. So maybe one day, I don't know, but that's not happening right now. So not many of us are ever going to feel that. I'm like, what does that feel like? And then when you're singing, where does that come from? Because it's it's one thing to sing, and then there's another thing to perform at a level like that, regardless if you like his music or not, is irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. Irrelevant. And he's like, he goes, oh, it's not me. I, I it, it just comes through me. I'm I'm in a complete. I don't even. 
I don't even know where I'm at when I'm on stage almost. So it's flying through me. And then I go, well, how do you get off that train? Like when you're on it, he's like, oh, I have a, I have a whole routine after the show. Because like how like the high of ninety thousand yeah. people, that energy coming yeah. towards you, like as yeah. re- as screenwriters and filmmakers, we don't get that. The closest we get to that is an audience in a movie theater or at a festival. That's yeah, the yeah. that's the closest we get to it. And it, that's really intense. It's really? oh god! If you have a, I've had been that. I've been in that room when the standing ovations and people asking you questions and all that attention and all that stuff. Um, and that's a, it's a really hot, explosive energy. Yeah, it is. So I'm like, but can you imagine ninety thousand? Like Paul McCartney. Like how? If I ever got a chance to talk to Paul, I'm like, how? how? Like how? Is it? How do you live as Paul McCartney? Like, how, you know, being the, the most most famous human being on the planet. Here's a great, a great little Paul. If you look at the, the clip of um, when he was doing a carpool karaoke with um, – uh, who's that guy that does it? Uh, James, you know, James Gordon. James Gordon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, there's a really beautiful exchange and it, and it speaks to this idea of that lightness of energy where they're they're talking um, and, uh, and he's going, um, oh, wow, you know, this is amazing. My dad who, who died, if he knew that I was talking to you right now and then Paul McCartney goes, he is, he's listening. And there was, again, there was just this lightness and otherworldliness of how he's able to open to something. And, uh, and James Corbin started crying. And that's it. And we, uh, we, our job as, as storytellers are, is to elicit emotion really deeply. And when we can get into sort of this open, sort of flowing, uh, e- ephemeral, uh, sort of spiritual state, those ideas flow and we're able to elicit motion much more deeply. And so there's a craft to sort of inducing it more often. Um, and, uh, and if you sort of make those choices and there's things like meditation or all sorts of different things, but like whatever your sort of, uh, process is to find your own way and to make that really the priority. Like my priority is I get up and I find that flow state and from that flow state, all these other good things happen as opposed to my job is to write a screenplay or to cross this next milestone or whatever. Those are too concrete and they put you down too sort of earthy. What you really want if you're being in the creative, a professional creative to find a way into that floaty daydreamy state um, as consistently as deeply as possible because that's where your best ideas are going to come. You know what's funny? Talking about light energy, um, you know, when I talk to some of these, some of these amazing uh, creatives, the ones that are the like that are at the top of their game. Almost all of them had an extremely light energy. They weren't heavy. They weren't heavy. Then there's very accomplished writers and filmmakers who I've talked to, who who it seems like they almost grind it out. They they almost like by pure force are are grabbing and creating amazing things but it's their own physical almost their own will that's pushing them where someone like a paul mccartney could just go hey jude (laughs) hey jude okay here's here's my theory on that i love that you brought it up my theory is the grinders are succeeding despite the grind correct that it's the flow is what works for everybody some people are able to more easily flow other people have to grind it out and haven't learned to sort of soften the grind part and they're so good and so talented they're, they're succeeding despite that sort of effort grinding hard work 
kind of constipated energy. You want to let that thing flow. And that's the thing. And that's a constipated energy is a great word to use because, you know, and we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but like someone like Spielberg, he has a very light energy to him and everybody. And I've talked to a ton of people who've worked with him. Yep. And I hear stories on air and off air about Mr. Spielberg, and you just go, "I understand. I get. I get. I get why he's Steven Spielberg." And I've you, heard that. Same, I've heard that same exact thing. That it's not that you, you you talk to him, and there's a there's at once a normalcy. He's totally normal and totally infatuated with the process at the same time, and that's that. And that's that sort of light light balance. It's, it's yeah. It's amazing. It's and, it's and, and, and he makes it sustainable. That's why he's able to hit in multiple decades because he's able to put himself in that flow state so deeply so consistently in so many different variables and variations because you're it is a shark infested business right so can i it's one thing for you and i to kind of have a cool conversation about flow here but can i keep that flow going a when i'm writing and b when i'm on meetings and c when i'm in all you know what i mean and the more places in your life you can up that volume of that flow state and be in there, the more success you have. And to me, somebody like Spielberg is mastering it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And you, but you, but I think also the thing that stops us from doing that is just the, um, the, uh, for lack of a better term, the crap that is surrounding us in living life, the the crap that Danny uh, Andy Dufresne goes through, like literally, it's it's this heavy shit that's been thrown onto us, and that could be childhood stuff, that could be anger, that can be you know uh, envy, that could be ego. All of that is is holding us down. But if you can shed it, shed it shed it off that's when you can become lighter and open up to these other areas and and here's and here's how to how to help you shift that who put that shit on me mm. a lot of people say oh it was my parents yes. this or that yeah, yeah. no 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 i put it on myself maybe because my parents were modeling it or whatever happened in my thing but here, the powerful thing is i created that reality as a kid i created how i responded to that i'm creating my reality now um, so if I have, if I have a shitty reality, I have the power to create a little less shitty reality, less shitty, less shitty, and then mm-hmm. eventually really magical, amazing reality. It's us owning our own perceptual system. I mean, it's gotta be based on, uh, on objective reality, right? There's, there's definitely a consistent reality outside of our subjectivity, but, um, we have a tremendous ability to, choose how we respond to objective reality and that's where that real power comes in our life Uh, i'll tell you from my point of view you know coming up i was an angry and bitter guy because i felt that it was just i wasn't getting that first of all in my 20s i'm like why hasn't anyone recognized my genius i mean obviously (laughs) why don't they don't they understand don't they understand who i am i mean that's right. Come on. Uh, so when that didn't, so when you didn't become Steven Spielberg or in my, or our generation, Robert Rodriguez, because he was the one that kind of like, that was the mad, that was the lottery ticket for our yeah. generation. No question. So you're like, if we're not Tarantino or, or Robert or Linkletter or Smith or any of the guys that came up in the nineties, we have failed. So when I couldn't get to that place or for whatever reason, the universe didn't open up that that those opportunities, I became extremely angry, extremely bitter. And that completely stifles any sort of creativity. It, it stifles 
everything. The moment I launched Indie Film Hustle and let go of all that, all that anger and started to give and started to be of service and start, right. my right. energy became lighter. Don't get me wrong. I ain't perfect. I'm definitely not Gandhi. But, um, but I noticed it. And this is something only us old farts can talk about. Um, as you get older, you start seeing these things. Some people never learn it in, in a lifetime. Yeah. But I started seeing that energy. And then that's when things started. Then I made my first feature. Then I made my second feature. Then I wrote my books. Then doors that were shut to me all my life. Doors that would I would have killed to talk, get into, are wide open now. So it right. was. it's really interesting. And if you look at some of the, and I don't want to get religious, but if you look at some of the spiritual leaders, even some spiritual like a Gandhi. Sure, sure. They, they're, they are not a heavy energy. <laughs> There, there, there is a very light lightness to it, and I, and I, and I don't want to get foo foo about it. But when we say light energy, it's kind of like this: you feel it when you meet somebody. Yeah. People feel like when you meet somebody, you just like, I gotta take a shower, or oh my god, I want to be around them. Like I don't know if you've ever been in a room with a movie star before. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, when you when you meet a movie star who's a real, real movie star, not a fallen star, not a star up and coming. A movie star. And when you're in the room with them, you go, oh, I get it. They don't say a word. Yeah. And you just get that energy from them. You're like, oh, it's, this it's that it's, it's that it factor that they talk about. And it absolutely is an energetic thing. They're one way or another able to sort of, um, sort of uh, show up with a certain type of energy that just is different than the way most people can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and a part of it's... Um, there's an authenticity to it and a sort of probably a lack of attachment to it. I mean, there's a qualities of how you sort of sort of facilitate that in yourself. But you're right. They have it. Politicians. I had a friend that met Bill Clinton. He was at, at some show hmm. like at the Met. And he said, man, after you know, he walked on stage and he said he literally never seen somebody that like literally looked like a million bucks. There was just an aura of energy. And he's not like an energy guy, but he was like that dude had this. And that's the thing. It's like you just – and obviously, if you're president, there's a lot of stuff going on, right? But in terms of like, I mean, that's an easy, but like, but movie stars have it. And, and, and what's great about everybody that's listening, it's not anybody can do it. Every, all of us can be, we, you know, we all are limited by what our own sort of biology Beliefs. is. But, yeah. but we can be at the max of our own ability by looking into these in your own way. What sort of spiritual shifts or energetic shifts? So there's things you, I promise you, you can do, and the mm-hmm. return on that investment. It's so phenomenally better for your joy. And as you do that inside job and make those shifts, everything else gets better. You write better stories. You have better relationships. It all happens. But it's got to start inside first. Like like if you don't do that and you win the Oscar or whatever, you still feel miserable. And sometimes you feel even more of a fraud because you haven't got the inside job worked out. Oh, yeah. And I've seen I've I've spoken to people like that that won an Oscar. And I'm like, so what's it like afterwards? You're like. I feel worse sometimes, you know, it was cool that night, but then afterwards, then what? Then it lasts for a little bit. And then it's hard. It's heartbreaking. It's you gotta, you gotta get back up there again. Like, and then it's like this, it's like winning the Super Bowl. Like, yeah, well, that's, that was where I was going. My, my, one of my favorite stories around this is, uh, Phil Jackson's, uh, his, uh, before he, like after the bulls, I think right when he started coaching the Lakers, he wrote this book called sacred hoops. 
and he and he talked about when he as a player won the NBA championships for the Knicks. And they went to like Tavern of Green and Robert Redford was there and Dustin Hoffman was there. And he was like, oh, my whole life was like, man, to win an NBA championship. And I'm here. And he felt empty. Ethan felt empty. And he was like, what the hell? And it was because he was what most people do. He was saying the outcome defines who I am as opposed to I'm just I'm just a soul that's expressing myself and my, 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 my sort of purpose on life is to be happy, is to be in this flow state. And then from there, I'm a great athlete or great this or great whatever. And, he, and for him, it was a real threshold moment that he was supposed to be the happiest point in his life and he wasn't. And it, it was a big part of his spiritual journey to say, no, 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 it's every day. I show up every day. I chop wood. I carry water. I mm-hmm. show up and find my state of happiness in service to people. And I love that story for you is that – you found that, that that place from I'm kind of a victim, things are happening to me, to no, no, I'm going to take ownership in my life. You knew so much about independent film and you started helping people this way and that way and the other way. And that spiraled you up and up and up and up. And you can see it. Your your energy really shines in a way that's different now than it was 10 years ago. It's really yeah, awesome. It, I appreciate that. I, I truly appreciate that. And, you know, the one other area that we all go through. We talk, we've talked about it a little bit. Is failure, and we all have had those 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 blocks, those things. You know, things not working out the way you go through. How do you approach failure in the business? Uh, and you know, because that script didn't get picked up. They didn't sell that script. I I couldn't get the money for the movie. Or that that actor dropped out, or a million things that could have happened. Um, me with my shooting for the mob, I literally got as close as to hanging out with Batman uh, at his house. And I mean, that's as close as you're going to get literally other than being on set and then it getting yanked from you. And that threw me in a two year depression and all of that kind of stuff. So how do you break through these? Because we all go through it and it doesn't matter what level you're at. I mean, Spielberg still goes through it. You know, all of them do. Yeah, they go through their own versions of failure, obviously. But how do you get through it? It's exactly what I just said. It's it's prioritizing flow state and joy and service above all. Right. Because when we can be, you know, and it's and it's and it's a practice. Right. And, and I'm, I'm really, really good at it. And I still stumble with it. Right. Um, but when my priority is I'm going to show up and I'm going to find, you know, uh, authentically, you can't just be like BS, you know, head in the clouds, whatever. You have to sort of be in your body and be of spirit. Right. It's, it's the balance of those things. And when you can do that legitimately with authenticity, um, differentiated from outcome that's when you know you're nailing it. And so the outcome could be deal goes through good or deal goes through bad. You can be got to be differentiated from either one. It could be a health crisis, relationship crisis, business. It's all the same thing. All those things, you will be happy to the extent those things are secondary to your number one priority is I show up and I'm an open human being and I'm existing and I'm trying to help other people. Uh, and, and that's, again, it, it takes practice, but anybody listening to this, if this sounds like, oh, you know what? There's some truth in it. Find your way to practice because you can do it. And I promise you, you the more you practice this in your own way and own style, the dividends are amazing. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And then oh, what happens, once, yeah. you get the in, once you get the inside job shifted, then everything else out in your life, your relationships are going to get better. Business is going to get better. You're just not because the, you know how it works in Hollywood. I so say you can't be desperate and you can't be boring, right? Uh, you're not going to be boring. You're authentic. 
and you and you and you're not going to be desperate if you differentiate from outcomes. Then you become that cool kid in high school. It's like, oh, okay, all right, everything's fine, everything's great. And so wherever you are in your journey, if you have this energy of it's perfect the way it is now, it's effing awesome, more good things are coming, and I'm already here. Everybody wants to work with that guy. If you're the crankier one, then it's it gets sketchier. Yeah, and and the um, that energy of death. I I. I uh... I always joke about the desperation as a as a cologne. We all can smell it in the business. Um, it's it's uh, it's called desperation by Calvin Klein, um, and we can and we can smell it a million. And I and I know it because I used to wear desperation quite often, especially when I first got to L.A. And you would meet one producer somewhere on a set, and you'd be on them like white on rice. And you were just like, "What can you do for me? How can you help me?" And is the wrong way of approaching it, and it's. Only afterwards where you just go, when you sit back and, and you're like, hey, if it works out, great. If it doesn't, it's all good. If you got that kind of energy to it, people yeah. want to work with that energy as much more so than somebody's like, me, 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 I can't help, can't, 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 desperation. It's horrible. And I don't know about you. I've only met a couple of desperate screenwriters in, in, in life. Not many. Not many. <laughs> That's never. never it's just it's rare to meet filmmakers or screenwriters who are desperate. Um, no, I'm joking. I, I kid who I love um, because we all have been there. We've all been that desperate person. And, and and if you can break through that, that's where that's why you see well, some people like, make it. And what's so interesting is screenwriters. What do you who is a screenwriter? You imagine stuff. You imagine worlds. You imagine things. So screenwriters imagine this beautiful life for yourself. And again, in an authentic way, not in a BS way. But like, look at the abundance in your life. The abundance of air. The abundance of like, you're gonna eat today. Problem. You're gonna have all these. You have friends. There's so much you can frame legitimately. Again, not BS, but like, authentically frame your your life in abundance, no matter what's happening. Um, and when you do that. In the, and using the same muscles that you write screenplays in, you just imagine this grounded, beautiful, blissful life for yourself and frame it that way. There was a way I, it struck me a couple months ago. I was walking to Trader Joe's with my um, my you know fourteen uh, year old son. And we were going in there to you know run an errand, and I had this really beautiful moment of going, oh. If I was like 10 years or 20 years in the future thinking back to this moment, it would be so sort of romanticized and lovely. And then I was like, oh, but I can do that now. And so in that moment, totally mundane errand with my son, I romanticized that. And it was so beautiful just to be there as a, you know, as a dad with his son. Um, do, we did nothing. We picked up some lettuce for lunch or whatever, you know, but it was so beautiful. And, and that ability for me to go, oh, I can frame my existence in a way that's really beautiful, in the way we might frame a shot as a, as a director, or as the way we frame a scene as a, a screenwriter. You can frame your own existence. And I'm telling you guys, the more you do that, everything slowly up levels. And I'm going to ask you a few questions I ask all my guests. Um, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? Um, the longest to learn, yeah, was was that the the nowness, you know, to, that I that I have the power to celebrate right now. Um, what did you learn from your biggest failure? Um, that it was not the failure; it was my response to the failure and how I what I was talking to myself about. What I said, you know, because I failed, then I'm not good enough or this enough or whatever. And as I got more familiar with that voice and kind of befriended that inner voice, 
um, then the failure became a really beautiful lesson. Um, but in the moment that it happened, it didn't feel that way. And what are three screenplays every screenwriter should read? Oh, your favorite three. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I I hate – one of the things at NYU Film School, I had this one instructor that was like, oh, you have to watch this such such movie. And I was like, you know what? F you. I'm never watching that movie. And it was a movie I would have liked, but I just – I resented that he was telling me I should. So I'm of of very much the mindset that whatever you personally want to to, to read or watch – uh, and just the amount that you want to watch it or read it is the ideal amount. So five minutes into Netflix, you don't like it, turn it off. Five minutes into my screenplay, if you're reading it, five pages, you don't like it, put it down. I want you to put it down. I want you guys focus on what you love most by your per- personal perspective because to me that is the most powerful thing you can do for yourself. And uh, where can people get a hold of you and, and find out what you're doing? Uh, com is, is my website for, if you, if you want to sort of explore working with me, there's two main programs that I, that I do. One is helping people develop a script. One is helping people get it sold. Um, and, uh, and if, if not me, I, I mentors, uh, that I, that I, cause I don't, I don't do hourlies. Sometimes people want hourlies and I have other people that, uh, that I basically refer them to. Although, you are the guy to hire if, uh, for any sort of independent film stuff. I mean, <laughs> guys, I'm telling you, because here's, here's the thing. Let me, let me plug you for a second because he's got the Amazon of, 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 of inter- information <laughs> for, um, for independent filmmakers. You've got writing. You've got everything. A lot of it's free. You've got premium. You've got the whole damn thing. But I'm telling you guys, you don't know what you don't know. Hmm. So hire Alex for a couple hours and, and tell them, I think I know this about making my next film or I think I know this or that. And he will go, yeah, you're right here. You're, this is correct. But this, you're totally off. And you'd rather get that in one hour from a master like Alex than <laughs> go for years to figure it out for yourself and go, God damn it. Alex could have told me that last year, but I didn't figure it out. So hire somebody that knows at whatever budget you can. And I'm telling you, that's going to speed up your game so much. Um, I, so- I- I appreciate that wholeheartedly for that plug, sir. Um, I could tell you from my experience, coaching could save you. I've, I've literally sometimes I've had someone give me an hour of their time uh, and they hire me for an hour and I save them. He's like, you just saved me 50,000 bucks. I'm like, because you didn't know. I mean, I know I've walked this path, man. Hire someone who's walked the path. It doesn't have to be me. It could be anybody that you feel comfortable with. But if they can, if you an hour or two talking to someone, coaching that could, oh my god, it's obscene what you can learn in in an hour and sixty minutes on your story. It could save you six months. It could save you sixty thousand dollars. It could save you so much time talking to someone who's just walked, and they don't have to particularly be a master. They just have to be ahead of where you're at. <laughs> That's exactly right exactly right it doesn't you know because because some people will talk themselves out of getting that help because oh i haven't heard of anything they've done or this or that or blah 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 but it doesn't matter if if the guy at trader joe's has a good idea to help you with your script or whatever hire him dude well whoever can help you move one step forward is great and and you don't we don't know what we don't know so even if here's what happens and this is never going to happen but even if you guys hire alex and he goes dude you got it Awesome. Yeah, I'm not worried about this. Your idea is great. This is great. And he gives you no other tips other than, dude, you are in great shape. That's like the best money ever spent. You're going to have so much more confidence. It's, it's so great. And of course, that's not going to happen. He's got all sorts of good ideas. But like, 
that feedback loop is really where we, we make the most progress as quickly as possible. So find some sort of mentor in some sort of way, and that's the fastest way forward for you guys. Brooks, it has been a pleasure talking to you, my friend. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll have you back on the show in a future date, but thank you so much for all you do for screenwriters and filmmakers, and uh, thanks for being on the show, brother. I appreciate it. Uh, it's completely my honor and my pleasure. Really exciting. I want to thank Brooks so much for coming on the show and dropping his knowledge bombs on the tribe today. Thank you so much, Brooks. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, including how to reach out to Brooks, head over to the show notes at IndieFilmMuscle.com forward slash 715. And if you haven't already, please head over to FilmmakingPodcast.com, subscribe and leave a good review for the show. It really helps us out a lot, guys. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com.